Hello everyone, and welcome to Chills, a podcast where we talk about the paranormal, true crime, and our own personal paranormal stories. Before we start, I would like to say happy birthday, Dad. Happy birthday, Mr. Cardona. You don't look a day over 30. We hope you enjoy your day, and I'm sorry this episode is so morbid, but it is very interesting. We have decided instead of releasing an episode every Monday, we will be releasing them every other Monday. So every two weeks, because we will also be releasing episodes on YouTube. We're starting off with episode four, and we will only be covering our personal paranormal stories until we get caught up. Don't forget, we still have merch. You can find it at chillspodcastnp.store. The link will also be available in today's episode description. This week, we will be talking about America's first ever serial killer. You may be thinking, oh, they will be covering H.H. Holmes. But what if I told you there was a serial killer loose in Austin, Texas before H.H. Holmes? This is the story of the Austin Axe murderer. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Chills. Just a fair warning, this episode is pretty heavy and not suitable for children, and we go into some gruesome details. So if this episode isn't for you, feel free to listen to our other episodes. The Austin Axe murderer, also known as the Servant Girl Annihilator and the Midnight Assassin, was an unidentified American serial killer who preyed upon the city of Austin, Texas, between 1884 and Christmas Eve of 1885. The killer would attack his victims while they were asleep in their beds, drag them outside of their home, and mutilate their bodies. He was able to evade law enforcement, private investigators, and angry mobs who lived in fear trying to protect the streets of Austin. Eyewitnesses did in fact claim that the Austin Axe murderer was indeed a man. If you haven't heard about the serial killer, it is because the city of Austin tried to cover it up. Austin used to be a cow town. There wasn't much going on. That slowly started changing, and before you know it, Austin had hotels and businesses, which attracted people to move to this up-and-coming city. It was a place where people were given new opportunities or to settle down and start their families. So when this axe murderer started his killing spree in the city of Austin, they did not want people to start moving out. This is also the first time anyone has heard of anything like this happening. The term serial killer had not been coined. So this was all very new to them. Law enforcement also did not think of studying the crime scene to build the killer's profile. Most forensic practices that we know today, such as fingerprints and DNA evidence, had not been discovered yet. So all they had to rely on was their hound dogs. They had their hound dogs going up and down the streets of Austin. But this did not deter the Austin Axe murderer from killing. He continued to go out at night and would kill women regardless of their race or social status. On December 30th, he killed his first victim, Molly Smith, age 25, and her boyfriend, Walter Spence, age 30, who happened to be staying the night. They were both asleep in her bed when they were both knocked unconscious. The intruder dragged Molly outside into her backyard, where he then murdered her. She had been struck on the head with an axe, which left a gaping hole, and was stabbed in the chest, arms, abdomen, and legs. There was so much blood loss that when they found her body, it had appeared to be floating in her own blood. Walter Spence was left seriously injured. 
From what I read is that the police did not take this case seriously since the couple was black and they just assumed it was a jealous lover. On March 19, 1885, two Swedish servant girls, Clara Strand and Christine Martinson, were attacked and seriously injured. They were left with lifelong injuries and unfortunately, they were not able to identify their assailant. This incident had the authorities' full attention and it was all over the newspapers and had readers demanding justice for Clara Strand and Christine Martinson. Next, on May 6, 1885, he went after Eliza Shelley, a young black cook for a former state legislator. Shelley was found with her head nearly split in two. Again, the killer went after her with an axe. Now the townspeople of Austin are furious and frightened. They decided to take matters into their own hands. The police force was no help at all. In fact, they were aiding to the crime rate instead of deterring crime. The angry mob and the police were not doing any good. All of their suspects were people of color. Austin was described as a place for anyone, regardless of their race or background, to have opportunities that were not available to them in other places. But after these incidents and killings, it turned into a lynch mob atmosphere. It got to the point where people did not want to leave their homes due to fear. Only two weeks later, the killer had killed his third victim. Irene Cross, a servant and the third black woman that was targeted. She was attacked and murdered on May 23, 1885. She had been stabbed with a knife multiple times while she was sleeping and it is said she was practically scalped. The mayor at the time saw what was going on and realized that the police were doing more harm than anything, so he decided to hire private investigators from Houston. Unfortunately, these private investigators made matters even worse by following the examples of the police. This created a mass hysteria for the people of Austin. Three women had been killed and two women had been left seriously injured, and the police had not been able to catch the killer. His next victim was Mary Ramey, an 11-year-old girl. On August 30th, the killer dragged Mary Ramey into the wash house, and she was stabbed through the ear. Rebecca Ramey, Mary's mother, was also seriously injured. Unfortunately, she was not able to identify the killer. The townspeople are still processing what is happening in their city of Austin when yet another killing has occurred. Only a month later, on September 28, 1885, he killed Orange Washington, age 25, with an axe while he was sleeping, and dragged Gracie Vance, age 20, from her bed into a stable where she was then murdered. Next, we move on to Christmas Eve of 1885. Susan Hancock, age 43, was murdered in her home right before midnight and her head was cleaved in two. It was also stated that something sharp and thin was stabbed in her right ear and into her brain. Across town, Yola Phillips, age 17, was also murdered in her home and she died an hour after Susan's body was discovered. Yola Phillips' head was bludgeoned with an axe. This time, the killer did something a little different. Her arms had been pinned down by lumber. Her husband, James Phillip Jr., age 23, was also attacked and left seriously injured. Within a year, the killer had murdered eight known victims. The people of Austin were frightened their sense of security was taken away. Since things were only getting worse, they took the next train out of Austin. 
Now, let's go over a couple of possible suspects, and how one of them may possibly be linked to a famous London serial killer. While investigating the murders, the authorities had noted the appearance of footprints which were usually bloody and made distinct impressions in the soil as the killer carried the weight of their victim. Apart from general measurements of size and shape, footprints were not very distinctive, and they wouldn't have been very useful to the authorities if the footprints didn't possess some unusual features. The footprints left behind at the Austin Axe murder crime scenes did share a very distinct feature. One of the footprints had only four toes. The police never actually shared this finding with the press or the general public during the course of 1885. The press frequently complained about the secrecy surrounding the murder inquests and argued that making all of the details of the crimes public would help lead to the capture of the killer more quickly. Not really, because that's how you get copycat killers. The police disagreed and kept certain details of the case from public knowledge. That's good. Details that they expected would eventually lead to the killer and link him to the crime scenes. In February of 1886, at a saloon in Town, east of Austin, a violent crime was taking place. 19-year-old Nathan Elgin had drunkenly wandered into the saloon, grabbed one of the women inside, and drug her to a nearby house. Inside, he began to beat and curse at the woman. People obviously saw Nathan drag the girl out of the saloon and could hear her yelling and screaming from inside the house. The entire neighborhood, including police, came out into the street and identified which house the screams were coming from. Police officer John Bracken, saloon owner Dick Rogers, and citizen Caleb Hawkins agreed that they'd go in the house and confront Nathan Elgin. The three men were able to get Nathan Elgin off the woman and out into the front yard. Once out in the open, Nathan was able to break free and take on all three men at once. How big was he? He was a 19-year-old guy, and these are like older men, so I imagine he's quicker than them. But even I feel like old men can still put up a fight. And he was drunk. He's got that drunk strength. I don't know. If I was drunk and trying to fight, I'd probably be falling everywhere. Yeah, that's true. He shoved Bracken and Hawkins and knocked Rogers off his feet. Nathan then immediately pulled out a knife and tried to attack Officer Bracken. Before Nathan was able to get to him, John Bracken pulled out his pistol and shot once into Nathan Elgin. The shot didn't kill him, but it had lodged in his spine, immediately paralyzing him. He was taken to a hospital where he eventually died the next day. During the autopsy, officials noticed something that could solve their problem. Nathan Elgin had only four toes. His footprint matched those found at other crime scenes. After learning of this though, the police didn't immediately release that information. During the search for the killer, the police force had tripled in number there were nightly citizen watch parties. It was essentially a new era in the Austin police force. Plus, they had wondered, what if they were wrong? Fingerprinting wouldn't become a useful tactic in criminology for another seven years, and if they wanted to, they didn't have the technology to compare footprints. There was nothing proven that Nathan Elgin knew how to handle an axe or that he had ever killed anyone. All they had to go on was that he had a foot with four toes. They also had hound dogs. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I just imagined Thor like trying to catch a scent, which Thor is actually really bad because he can catch a scent. The only scents he can catch are treats. No. Okay. So 
usually whenever there's like a bunny around he can like he knows that it's around but it's usually like right behind him and he's going the opposite way so (laughs) the police agreed to keep the information private and continue looking for more possible suspects that leads us to another suspect a man by the name of maurice was a malaysian chef at a downtown austin hotel the pearl house Maurice was a man who was always coincidentally near each of the crimes. He was even suspected of committing the crimes after being seen leaving one of the crime scenes, but was released after police agreed that there was no way he could have committed it because he was, quote, too drunk and incoherent to even speak. That's when the final killing had taken place, and a couple days later, police were sure it was Maurice again. The police went to the Pearl House and spoke to Maurice's manager. The manager explained to them that Maurice had come into work the day earlier and asked for his paycheck. The manager said that Maurice told him, I need my final paycheck. I'm riding down to Galveston tonight where I'll board a ship and head for London. Police immediately got on their horses and booked it for Galveston. Wait, he went to London because he wanted to be a chef over there, correct? I think so, yes. That was his dream, to be a chef in London. Unfortunately though, they had arrived too late. The dock crew confirmed that a cook named Maurice had boarded the ship and set sail for London. After that night, not a single murder had taken place again relating to the axe murderer. But how interesting that the brutal axe murders of the Austin killer had stopped after Maurice left town and another set of famous murders in London had begun to take place. In the town of Whitechapel, five women, possibly more, would be murdered by a killer dubbed Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper was known for killing prostitutes and brutally mutilating their bodies. Just like this guy. Well, he just killed women and mutilate their bodies. They have a lot of similarities. Jack the Ripper would slit the victim's throat, cut open their abdomen and genital area, and remove their internal organs. Then, he would brutally slash their face to the point where the bodies would be almost unrecognizable. The murders of Jack the Ripper began in 1888, which puts Maurice in London at that time. In London, on the 13th of August, 1888, a sailor named George Dodge was interviewed by Scotland Yard, which, when I googled it, that's that's the name of the London police. Oh. I thought it was, it sounds like a... Uh, like a pub. Oh Oh, yeah, a newspaper. I I was thinking drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Dodge claimed to have met a Malaysian cook named Alaska, or probably Laskar, an old Malaysian word for sailor, at the Queen's Music Hall at Poplar, London. He claimed that Alaska was about 35 years old, 5 feet 7 inches, weighed around 63 kilograms or 140 pounds, and sometimes carried a double-edged knife which he showed George. He also claimed Alaska was from Austin, Texas, and told him that, quote, he had been robbed by a woman of bad character, and that unless he found the woman and recovered his money, he would murder and mutilate every Whitechapel woman he met. Oh my God. Maurice the Cook eventually found his way onto the list of suspects that could be Jack the Ripper. Of course, as we know today, Jack the Ripper was never caught. In 1988, famous psychiatrist, neurologist, and anatomist, Charles Edward Spitzka said, 
I would suggest that the same hand that committed the Whitechapel murders committed the Texas murders. Even with today's science and advancements in technology, the Austin police force is unable to disprove the theory that the Austin Axe murderers and Jack the Ripper killings were not done by the same man. We actually learned about this theory when we went down to Austin um, during Halloween weekend and we went on a ghost tour and the guy leading the ghost tour actually told us about this. And we actually stayed at the Driscoll Hotel and if you don't know anything about it, it's actually supposedly haunted. So we will be covering that for our next episode. That's another reason the Austin police didn't want to tell everyone about this because the hotel opened in 1886 Mm-hmm. And so it was brand new, it was all nice, and they wanted rich people to stay there. And of course, if there's a serial killer running around downtown Austin, then people aren't going to want to hang out. They did have trouble attracting people to the Driscoll Hotel because of all the murders and suicides that happened there. And that concludes this week's episode of Chills. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or follow us on Instagram for episode updates at Chills Podcast NP. You can also now find us on YouTube at Chills Podcast NP.